And welcome once again to Father Spencer's Universe at the intersection where faith and reason meet each week here. I'm Doug Keck, the gatekeeper from the mothership in Irondale, Alabama on Mother Angelica Way where it all began back in 1981. And of course, your questions are very important to us, especially on this program. So you can send them to us at spitzersuniversityw10.com. Check out all of Father Spitzer's websites, the Magis Center one, the Credible Catholic one, Purposeful Universe dot com as well and you'll see lovely pictures of Father Spitzer smiling at you on those sites as well. So we got Father Spitzer's Universe always available of course on our EW10 On Demand page and on our EW10 YouTube channel so you can check that out and all your favorite shows and homilies from the Daily Mass many of our great children's programming shows are featured there as well and that's our EW10 On Demand page. Now there are some four pay programs that are available through our religious catalog. That's EW10 In Demand. You can check that out as well if you're not seeing it on our On Demand page. And today we're kind of catching up on all those questions you've been sending us we haven't had a chance to get to. So with that being said, we'll turn once more to the answer man, Mr. Universe himself, <laughs> Father Spitzer, who will uh, uh, knock these down one at a time. Go ahead, Father, you kick things off with a prayer. Sure, Mr. Universe. Wow, that's a, that's a tough one to live up to. <laughs> name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your many blessings to us, the blessing of this good turn of events uh, in the Supreme Court uh, and our ability to work toward a pro-life culture uh, at long last. We ask you to send your Holy Spirit down upon us this day, Doug, myself, our whole audience, uh, so that everything we do and say will be brought to fruition in your will for the good of your people, your church, and your kingdom. We ask all of these things through Jesus our Lord. Amen. And Mary, seat of wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Very good, Father. Like we said, we'll get to some questions. Uh, one of the questions, right before we get to the ones we prepared, was from a previous program where one of the things we, we, we talked a little bit about Catholic cemeteries and some of the canards yeah. that are out there from some oh. of the pro-aborts who are promoting all of these stories of miscarriages and ectopic pregnancies. That's another one having to do with ectopic pregnancies. What is, what is yeah. the church's position in dealing with that as it relates to quote-unquote abortion? Well, uh, two things uh, should be really clear. First of all, an ectopic uh, pregnancy and caring for an ectopic pregnancy is not an abortion. It's not a voluntary abortion. You're not doing anything uh, to uh, kill uh, a human life here intentionally. And therein lies the, uh, uh, the real um, uh, you know, distinction, uh, voluntarily killing a human life or taking a human life. So uh, what's going on with an ectopic pregnancy? Uh, simply this, that uh, you have a fertilized egg um, that we truly do believe is human life, that um, it has not, instead of attaching in the, in the uterus, in the uh, um, uh, inner uh, cavity of the uterus, it has attached itself somewhere, or it's gone somewhere else and is developing very rapidly somewhere else. Mm -hmm. The normal place where it winds up developing is the fallopian tube, right. although it could be in an ovary or somewhere else, but yeah. normally it's the fallopian tube. The difficulty is it's developing so quickly mm. uh, that it's very likely to cause a rupture in the fallopian tube. And with that rupture, of course, is a very real possibility of great harm to the mother. Mm. And, um, and so uh, uh, ideally, 
It could even be death, actually, uh, to mm -hmm. the mother, so I should point that out. But uh, ideally, the, the way to, de to deal with this would be, uh, first of all, if you could somehow extricate um, that uh, little baby from the fallopian tube and uh, put the, uh, the uh, uh, baby into the uterus, uh, that would be the, the, the ideal way to do it. Unfortunately, those attempts just simply have not yet worked. So uh, in the process of trying to move uh, the little baby, of course, the, uh, 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 some, you know, mm -hmm. the, the uh, baby is killed. So uh, normally, uh, rather than take the chance of uh, doing that, um, uh, one way of uh, dealing with the ectopic pregnancy that is licit is to uh, take the um, affected place in the fallopian tube and to uh, sever uh, that uh, on either side mm -hmm. of where the little baby is developing and then suture off uh, you know those uh, uh, the place in the, in the fallopian tubes and then take that damaged part of the fallopian tube as well as the uh, the uh, uh, baby mm -hmm. uh, that is there and you uh, you remove that and you say well in the process of doing that you are killing the baby mm. we have a principle in the catholic church right. called uh, double effect right. and that principle basically holds that you know the intention of the doctor who's doing that is to actually take out the uh, part of the fallopian tube that is affected could rupture could kill the mother and to take that out that's the intention so that she can live. Unfortunately, the foreseen, and here's the thing, but unintended mm -hmm. consequence is that the, um, the uh, 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 baby is going to die mm -hmm. uh, in the process of doing it. But the intention of the doctor is certainly not to um, to, uh, to kill the baby. Mm -hmm. The intention of the doctor is to save the mother's life by uh, preventing that uh, fallopian tube uh, from rupturing. Mm -hmm. So that's the, the basic uh, object, right. uh, objective and, and the principle of double effects is, yeah, there is an unintended consequence, that's the death of the child, but really the, uh, the first uh, consequence is to, to uh, you know, take that fallopian mm -hmm. tube and uh, get it uh, out of there so that the mother's life uh, can be um, uh, preserved. Right, and, and in this case, we're also talking about something that is a limited number of cases that actually happen like this. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm, so. mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, you can treat this, and doctors have been treating this, you know, for mm -hmm. decades and decades, you know, and of course, it's never been confused with an abortion before. Suddenly, of course, it's now being called yes, an abortion, right. you know, mm -hmm. an obvious canard for uh, the purposes of misinforming people and uh, getting people to panic. And doctors, Catholic doctors, will continue to illicitly perform, um, you know, pr uh, procedures uh, to rectify ectopic mm -hmm. pregnancies going forward. So uh, it's the usual thing of, uh, you know, misinformation. And um, uh, there's not going to be any... Um, uh, you know, doctors are not going to let mothers die, right. uh, you know, because of this legislation. Contrary to what, perfectly, uh, contrary perfectly to what the ridiculous. claims are, uh, ridiculous claims yeah, that are exactly. Them, right? Yeah. Okay, let's yeah. get to some specific questions. Here's one. A person writes, Dear Father Spitzer, I've been pro-life voter for over 40 years with the repeal of Roe v. Wade. I keep hearing, well, overturning it anyway, 
the rights that were granted to women seeking abortion on demand under Roe v. Wade were quote-unquote constitutional rights, of course. I never thought the Constitution guaranteed any such thing, but that Roe v. Wade actually is an adjudication and did not bestow any constitutional rights at all, which is what the court basically said. This mm -hmm. sounds more like the same agenda from the pro-abortion camp to me to claim that, I guess, that it's still a right. Could you give me your thoughts on this, Tom? Uh, well, Tom, I think you're, uh, as I say, right on, no pun mm. intended. I, I have to tell you that uh, you are correct. The Constitution never uh, granted a right of abortion. The Roe v. Wade decision didn't grant a right of abortion. You can't make a right where none existed. Uh, abortion, of course, can't be an inalienable right. An inalienable right is one that is necessary in order for somebody to act like a human being. The right to life, the right to liberty, right, the right to have custody uh, over uh, your own domicile, et cetera, et cetera. Now, um, these kinds are, of rights are needed for just mm -hmm. elementary or minimal justice, and that's why they're called inalienable, because if you don't have such a right, uh, injustice will no doubt be done to you. Uh, and, you know, somebody may try to le even legitimize the injustice to you. Mm -hmm. Now, abortion can't be an inalienable right. So all you got to do is ask yourself the question, um, do you need to abort people in order to have a, a, a human, uh, in order to live as a human being? Obviously, no, you don't need to kill innocent human beings in order for you to be human. It was the same thing with, uh, can you call the Dred Scott decision, can you call the ownership of a slave an inalienable right? Of course you can. I mean, uh, you don't need slaves mm -hmm. in order to live a human life, to, to have the, the strict justice needed uh, you know, for you to live a human life. So uh, the, the point is there's no inalienable right to an abortion. There's never been a constitutional right to, uh, to an abortion. Roe v. Wade can't, as it were, legislate through the judiciary uh, this right of abortion uh, going forward. So uh, for all intents and purposes, um, uh, Sam Alito's decision, mm -hmm. uh, oh, Justice Alito's decision was very, very good indeed. So uh, I think uh, that's the first thing, um, uh, Tom, that you're, uh, you're correct about. The second thing is, is it's the, 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 you know, the abortion decision is going back to the states mm -hmm. now. And, and states' rights, that's a good place for it to be, in the hands of the voters. And uh, as I've said in previous programs, uh, when it goes back to the states, we will, as citizens, mm -hmm. even have uh, the right to uh, create initiatives in those states, even in states that are very pro-abortion, we'll have the right to create initiatives to limit uh, abortions in the second and third trimesters and many of them even in very much pro-abortion states will I think be successful because 72% uh, of people are against second trimester abortion 92% are against third trimester abortions across the board so um, uh, I think we've got a very good chance in recreating a pro-life culture okay very good here's another question and this is uh, someone basing a response apparently off something that was said on one of the programs. We'll see how accurate mm -hmm. it is. Dear Father Spitzer, on a recent show you discussed end-of-life care and what we must do to support it. You said that IV fluids and IV nutrition must be provided. Intravenous therapy is considered an invasive procedure. 
From what I have heard on EWTN in discussion with several priests, invasive treatments are not required. Plus, the use of IVs, especially long-term, are not without risk. My wife and I made decisions about our end-of-life care that now seem to be in contradiction to your statements. Do we need to change our decisions, Jim? Well, Jim, as far as I know, the Catholic Church has always taught that uh, intravenous feeding um, is uh, a procedure that is uh, normal um, mm -hmm. for people and it's just called basic hydration and nutrition. Mm -hmm. uh, eventually, of course, you cannot live simply on uh, intravenous um, uh, you, you know, feeding because you're not going to get enough nutrients from it. You would have to have a feeding tube eventually. Now, a feeding tube is an invasive procedure. Right. That's a surgery that's required to put it in. But uh, actually, um, you, uh, uh, intravenous feeding, mm. um, uh, the IV procedure, is not uh, being considered an uh, invasive procedure because right. this is really not a surgery. It's, it's just uh, you know, you're putting basically a needle in the arm or actually right. you're, you're putting in uh, uh, a needle into a little um, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, catheter. Uh, kind of ca ca yeah, it's a little tube that's uh, inserted mm -hmm. in your arm mm -hmm. so that you can easily just put it in and take it out again. Um, and uh, and uh, that's not, not considered extraordinary means right. by the church at this time. Right, absolutely. So, yes, uh, would yeah. you? I, I'd say go ahead and, yeah, I'd rectify uh, your, uh, your end of life decisions there with respect to uh, intravenous feeding. You don't have to alter anything. I mean, if you don't want a feeding tube, you don't have to have mm -hmm. a feeding tube. You don't need any kind of a surgery, uh, but intravenous is not, uh, is not considered Yeah, that's a basic, basic care that yeah. you, you have yeah. to have available for people. Okay, next up, Dear Father Spitzer, I read an article that related the increase in violence, specifically the mass shootings over the past few years, to overprescribing of antidepressants and other drugs to young men. The author stated there is a legitimate use for these drugs, but they are often given to boys to, quote, calm them down or level them out, basically to stop boys from acting like boys. This plus the absence of a father figure leads these young men into destructive behavior, especially if medicines or medications are stopped later. Your thoughts on this, Hannah? Yeah, Hannah, I'm, gee, I'm not sure uh, about the antidepressant part, uh, to be honest with you. I, I really haven't studied that, but I can go back and um, study that. I do know that what you said about the absence of the father figure is absolutely correct. Mm -hmm. uh, that does very much have an effect on the emotional stability of young boys. Furthermore, um, father figures are the ones uh, oftentimes that teach the respect for the law mm -hmm. uh, to the young boy and also uh, the standard protocols for interacting with society, uh, particularly with other men. So um, in that regard, uh, having, uh, not having a father uh, would definitely affect uh, the uh, moral behavior uh, of the um, of the uh, young man. Uh, we also know too that the absence of religion in the family is another reason why um, young people do not have the, that appreciation for moral responsibility uh, to uh, someone beyond themselves. And, and of course the, the, the presence of God we know there's direct correlation. Those who have religious beliefs in their lives are much more likely to act ethically, mm -hmm. specifically at the moment of a, you know, in a particular situation, uh, you know, the moment a decision is called for, 
uh, in that situation, the person with religion is more likely to uh, act ethically than the person who has no uh, religious beliefs. That's come from a big uh, Parvatiya study uh, that uh, has been done, and I've, I can give you those uh, links to, to get to that study. The third um, thing that we also know uh, too is that if the father participates in the religion mm -hmm. um, right. regularly that the young man will not only take the religious cue but will also take the cue that moral conduct uh, follows from the religion and that if the father is doing that of course that young man is more likely uh, to act morally if they're likely to act morally they're even more likely to act legally. Mm. So all of these things are, I believe, the real things that are there. Um, you're right on the marker, mm -hmm. Hannah, with respect to the uh, father being present. Uh, also, I think religion is a very um, important and that religious, that uh, moral teachings corresponding to the religion are taught in the household and respect for law and civil society is taught by the father in the household. If all of those conditions are met, your young man is very, very likely uh, to be a law-abiding citizen. Right. It's interesting. Recently, I saw a wonderful documentary on, on Clarence Thomas, uh, Justice Thomas, yeah. uh, who, who, you know, where the father had left very early on in his in his yeah. upbringing, but he ended up with his grandfather, and he became the father figure, and he really credits his grandfather mm -hmm. so much with whatever success. And the other group, he, he credits his, uh, the Irish nuns who taught him in, uh, in uh, school as well. Yeah. Both gave him structure yeah. into his life. He really gives them a lot of credit. Well, that's, there it is. I mean, the, so long as you have a father figure, it does not necessarily have to be the, fa uh, uh, the, the father. It could mm -hmm. be a grandfather. It could be an uncle. It could be somebody. But if you have that father figure who's close enough to be in almost daily contact uh, with the person, that's what's really required. It does not necessarily have to be uh, the father. But the second thing that's really important is those nuns were representing God, religion, etc., and that was definitely affecting uh, the young Clarence Thomas. Absolutely. Here's another question a little bit on a uh, different topic. Dear Father Spitz, we'll throw this window and break it up. What is the role of the Blessed Virgin Mary and the saints in the rite of exorcism from Ahmed? Uh, well, Ahmed, you know, the Blessed Virgin Mary and the saints are oftentimes uh, present during an exorcism. And if you invoke the Blessed Virgin and the saints, uh, during, like St. Michael, for example, which is often done in an exorcism, uh, then um, uh, definitely they can show up sometimes and uh, uh, they can be present um, uh, at an exorcism where uh, people can actually say that they have seen um, uh, them uh, being present. Uh, the Blessed Virgin Mary and the, uh, of course, St. Michael are very powerful figures. Mm -hmm. I think I have pointed out with respect to St. Michael, um, you know, the uh, diary of the right. Robbie Mannheim uh, exorcism, which was the background for mm -hmm. the uh, exorcist movie, the exorcist book, uh, well, uh, written by William Peter Blatty. Well, in that book, uh, you know, when the um, devil actually came out, it was uh, St. Michael that was commanding him uh, over that boy. So it was, 
you know, this is St. Michael, you know, uh, get out, get out, you know, I command you, get out. So uh, when you uh, look at that, St. Michael was definitely present at that exorcism. I know that um, uh, in this book, The Right, uh, several of the stories that were recounted there, that was, uh, you know, where Father Gary Thomas was uh, uh, involved, but uh, it was a book written by a fellow named Bagelow uh, uh, in that book, mm -hmm. uh, definitely in some of the stories. Mary was definitely present. Uh, during um, uh, the exorcisms. So yes, uh, they do show up there. Mm -hmm. uh, are they absolutely necessary? Uh, uh, you know, or can you just use the regular rite of exorcism? Uh, I mean, of course, all the time, uh, the regular rite of exorcism makes use of the precious blood of Jesus and you know, the blood of Christ commands you, the body of Christ commands you. Right. Uh, those are the normal first you know, petitions because the name of Jesus is so powerful in the exorcism right but certainly conjoined to that uh, you can have uh, Mary mm -hmm. uh, St. Michael uh, the power of the saints uh, no question about that you're, you're a regular Max von Sydow there for a second there with the, yeah. the power of Christ <laughs> commands you all right? oh yeah that's okay. right oh yeah exactly that's right well that right. oh no no question that's part of the Right, yeah. All right. yeah. <laughs> Dear Father Spitzer, I appreciate your enthusiastic evangelization, particularly in respect to matters where faith and science cross paths. Recently you discussed that you believe man received his soul around 60,000 years ago. The evidence you gave was the rise of complex behaviors like religious practice, language usage, and other factors. How mm -hmm. would this relate to man's fall? It seems like we go from brutish ignorance to insolment and reason, and then back to sinful ignorance of God. Grant. Yeah, um, well, actually, um, remember, the Catholic view of the fall is that you don't fall all the way to brutishness, right? So um, that would be a more a Calvinistic view of the fall. Uh, our view of the fall is that at the end of the fall, human beings are still made in the image and likeness of God. If I can put it simply, human beings are at least 51% good. Uh, you know, after the fall. So you, you, we don't, uh, in, in the Catholic view of the fall, we, we don't fall all the way. So what's happening, what happens is that our vision of God, our sense of God is definitely interrupted. It's definitely uh, through a glass darkly, mm -hmm. but it's not through an opaque, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, barrier. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, uh, uh, it's definitely more limited, uh, you know, our sense of God, our sense of his presence, our sense of his will, our, our sense of, uh, you know, conscience uh, with respect to, you know, it breaking through to us, etc. So it has gotten limited. Mm -hmm. And because of that limitation of vision, which, by the way, uh, you know, even though the insolment probably happened 60,000 years ago, uh, etc., Definitely, I believe that the fall happened with that very first generation, exactly as the Bible has said. Mm -hmm. And the reason is, is because, you know, obviously the, uh, uh, the, the knowing uh, what murder is and the killing uh, almost begins right away, right? Mm -hmm. So there's all these various manifestations, uh, you know, that, uh, that uh, we have kind of fallen, um, you know, knowingly falling, where we appreciate what we are doing. We appreciate that somehow we're violating some sacred covenant in what we are doing, 
yet uh, in our freedom we go ahead and do it anyway. So I'm pretty sure yeah. uh, there was a fall. Uh, no, I'm not pretty sure. I'm very sure yeah. there was a fall. But uh, it didn't have to be, but Adam and Eve freely consented uh, to this. Uh, I also think there's other things in the narrative which I surely agree with. Uh, was the devil part of it? Absolutely. <coughs> you know, um, <clears throat> obviously the snake or the serpent mm -hmm. is a metaphor <clears throat> of the evil spirit, but he was certainly a part of it. Mm -hmm. The minute human beings were free, the minute human beings had self-consciousness, the minute human beings had an awareness of God, the minute human beings had an awareness of the cosmic struggle between good and evil and knew the difference between good and evil, there, right at their elbow, was the evil spirit mm. as well. To tell them what? To encourage them right to become like little gods themselves. Mm. How prescient that narrative in Genesis is. So, I mean, uh, uh, that all being mm. said, yes, I think that happened uh, uh, right away. And then what's the result? What St. Augustine called concupiscence, right? So in other words, uh, now because our vision or sense of God, our vision and sense of, of um, you know, what he, his will is and what his love is for us vis-a-vis -vis that will, because it's kind of darkened like through a glass darkly, because it is, uh, it's now easier for us to submit to sin. It's now easier for us to fall prey to, to temptations, right? We just don't have that, you know, rich kind of vision, communication, sense, uh, you know, intuition of God and His will that we had before the fall. And because of that, right, we are more easily susceptible uh, to uh, sin and uh, mm -hmm. let's call that uh, concupiscence. We more easily uh, can fall into temptation. Mm -hmm. But we haven't fall, fallen all the way. We're still free after the fall. Uh, we're not, you know, as, uh, you know, Calvin, Calvin went all the way, right? Mm -hmm. He basically said, you know, uh, it's almost like we lost our human freedom practically. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas uh, in um, in this case, we have maintained our freedom. We're still ensouled. We still have a vision of God. We still have religious sensibility. We still have a sense of the sacred. We, you know, wh why is, you know, prior to, you know, this uh, century, why was about 90% of the world uh, continuously religious? Mm. Uh, was it just because of uh, custom? Was it just because of these were the sort of traditions that were around? Of course not. There's something in each of us interiorly that drives us to want to be religious, to want to have communion with this God that we have an awareness of within ourselves. What Rudolf Otto would have called uh, the Newman, the numinous experience, God's interior presence to us. There is this drive, this sense of the sacred, this sense of decency, and there is real conscience that is still quite alive and awakened within us. Yes, it's interrupted. Yes, its effects are not as transparent as they once were. But still, the eight principles that C.S. Lewis has so beautifully articulated, the general principles that apply to all religions and cultures um, in his book, The Abolition of Man, at the appendix there, uh, those eight principles are still, we're, we're all aware of it. We all know intuitively we should be decent to our parents. We all know intuitively we shouldn't be swiping stuff from other people. We all know intuitively uh, that we shouldn't be murdering innocent human beings and stealing their stuff 
stuff. We still feel guilt uh, right after the fall, of course. But we knew, uh, we know when we have done wrong, you know, in the, you know, basic murder and stealing and, and, and adultery and, and all of the other things, you know, the, the, the breaking and rebelling against God and his law, we know. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, for all intents and purposes, uh, it remained intact. It just wasn't as clear. So we never sank into brutishness. We basically uh, sank uh, maybe uh, as much as 49% of the way there, but mm -hmm. no further. Okay, very good. And one last question, I think, before we hit the mm -hmm. break, probably. Uh, dear Father Spitzer, now that Roe versus Wade has been overturned, do you think this decision will impact the protection of unwanted frozen embryos? Any idea what the church's position would be on this question? This would be Chris. Oh, Chris, that's a pretty good question. I hate to be the dummy twice in a program and say that I haven't uh, really thought this through um, uh, completely. Um, uh, but uh, what I would say is I don't think it would adversely affect um, frozen human embryos um, uh, because, of course, uh, um, you know, th those are embryos that n never... Uh, uh, did attach. We, of course, as a Catholic Church, believe that they are genuinely human right. life. I'm not sure, though, in the eyes of the law, which is what the question is that you're mm -hmm. asking, in the eyes of the law, whether that would be effective because abortion's been overturned. I'm probably going to say in the eyes of the law, no, right. it won't be affected because they just don't hold our view of um, the uh, the uh, uh, fertilized uh, egg being, uh, the, the single-celled zygote being uh, a human life that has intrinsic uh, dignity um, in and of itself. Okay, very good. With that, we're going to take our break. Thank you, Father Spitzer. Stay that right there, and you stay there as well. Much more ahead. More questions for Father Spitzer and answers as well. We do appreciate you staying with us for part two of Father Spitzer's Universe, taking your questions and catching up uh, with Father Spitzer. And we turn to some more questions. Here's an interesting one, Father. It's a little long, uh, okay. so bear with me. Dear Father Spitzer, I am a Catholic African-American woman who resents the solicitation of ethnic minorities and women in general to lure us into supporting a political agenda that is against church teaching and traditional family values. Even the Catholic diocesan social justice groups spend far less time promoting our own traditional black working class family traditions, which align with the Christian slash Catholic traditions and are trying to push us into this support abortion, multi-gender lifestyles, non-biblical lifestyles of all types. So many urban African-American and Hispanic families send their kids to Catholic schools to escape the conditions in the public schools. However, they fail to see that the political agenda of the left and seem to support it. How does one fight against it? And this is from B. I would think, uh, I think we're starting to see some pushback against that, aren't we? Yeah, I think certainly in the Catholic schools, mm. uh, there is um, 
definitely. I mean, obviously, um, you know, there are some efforts in some Catholic schools that have sort of moved a little bit toward uh, CRT, you know, the critical uh, race theory uh, things. Uh, but I have to say, um, uh, the Catholic schools in general have been uh, more, uh, much more resistant uh, than the public schools uh, to that sort of thing. But more importantly, though, uh, sometimes the social justice component, uh, even minus the CRT part of it, the critical race theory part of it, um, you know, uh, the social justice component was never meant to rule out you know, our, uh, you know, the dignity, the intrinsic dignity of every human life was never meant to rule out the morality or the immorality of abortion, <clears throat> right? And so, uh, but that sometimes has happened. Mm. Or what I think B, you're saying is that uh, sometimes the curriculum or the programs that the kids are getting are really heavy, like 90% uh, on, on social justice items, which I, I think the social justice items are important and good, mm -hmm. but if it's to the exclusion right. of things that are really important, like uh, uh, the immorality of abortion and the intrinsic dignity of every human life, I mean, this is, uh, um, right. you know, so incredibly uh, important that if we forget it, I mean, the genocide that's being done on on black children in, right. in abortion. I mean, it it's it's so disproportionate to other races. Um, it, it's it's scary. Yeah. Uh, it's almost like uh, Margaret Sanger's vision of uh, sort of eliminating her uh, inferiors um, yeah. has has come to pass. I mean, it's almost like it, it, the the. the the, the elimination of, of little black uh, uh, children has been so, so disproportionate. Right. It almost has a eugenic, uh, right. you know, element to it. And so I, I agree with you. I think for the sake of our uh, good um, uh, African-American uh, kids out there, we should really be alerting them that the back door of eugenics mm. is just the elimination of of uh, you know African Americans, it's not right. uh, you know well, and almost systematic. Well, you know, where, where are the, the abortion clinics? Exactly, place? I think close to ninety percent of them are located in those urban yeah. areas, and I think yeah. the numbers are like in the thirties for both uh, blacks are it's thirty percent or thirty something percent, and whites are percentage is lo is lower, slightly lower. But yeah. you're only talking about thirteen percent of the population making up more than a yeah. third of the abortions. That's right, that's right. And that's where the disproportionality comes right. in. So, uh, so that's, that's, the, uh, that's a real problem. And um, so I'm, as you already pointed out, um, you know, all the, the uh, many of the abortion clinics yeah. are right there in the, uh, uh, the, the affected uh, areas. But I think this is a Margaret Sanger vision that has become a reality. And unfortunately, there are uh, really um, African-American people who are, are promoting it. They're, right. they're literally promoting uh, these kinds of uh, clinics. And I, I'm scratching my head going, why? You know, this is targeted against you, against your people. Why well, uh, are, you, are you supporting this? I, so that's, I, uh, and it's not just limited to them. You can say Catholics and other people where you would be confused as to why they would. But there's an old expression yeah. from uh, all the president's men, follow the money. You know, that's always a good yeah, place to yeah. start, right? Yeah, so, yeah uh, that's right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Next, next up, another question. Dear Father Spitzer, 
My husband and I practice natural family planning. We discuss the subject of the sanctity of sexual relations with a few other NFP couples and now have doubts about our periods of abstinence. Are all sexual acts between Catholic married couples that do not end in intercourse every time sinful? How would we know if we cross the line into sin? Mary. Well, gee, Mary, no. I mean, uh, obviously, uh, you, you don't have uh, sexual acts that don't, um, you know, finally uh, constitute an act of intercourse. They're, they're not um, uh, sinful if you're in a married relationship uh, with somebody. So, uh, no, I think uh, there's some, uh, some uh, good books on this, but uh, uh, there is a, a great deal of freedom of sexual love um, in a marriage, a uh, Catholic uh, marriage, um, you know, that uh, I think there actually was a book entitled The Freedom of Sexual Love um, by, uh, uh, maybe out of print now, by the birds, B-Y-R-D-S, um, that gives you a pretty good synopsis of, uh, you know, the, that what uh, is permissible um, um, in the, you know, under Catholic teaching. So uh, you might want to take a look at, um, at uh, that book or mm -hmm. see if you can get a, a PDF of the out of print uh, one if it's out of print but there's a variety of different books like that that uh, uh, give you some sense of, uh, of you know uh, if it's you know within the marriage itself you know mm -hmm. there's there's a great deal of latitude okay mm -hmm. very good next up another mm -hmm. question dear father Spitzer occasionally in our parish lay people will be invited to give a quote-unquote guest homily at mass They'll usually do a very good job relating the readings to their own life experience. However, this seems wrong. I was under the impression that only priests or deacons were to give homilies. Gavin. Uh, Dan, you're right. Uh, <laughs> priests and deacons are supposed to give homilies. Uh, now, you can get guest uh, speakers to come uh, and do something like in the announcements, you know, uh, you know, before the Mass ends there, before the final blessing, you can say, now Joe and Mary are going to come and talk about this program or yeah. uh, something of that nature. But the idea uh, of um, uh, people coming up uh, to, you know, to actually preach to the congregation, yeah. to have the grace of ordination, the commitment and background to study the scriptures and uh, to know what the church teaching is officially, uh, that's supposed to belong to deacons and to priests. Mm -hmm. So you're absolutely correct in this regard. Um, and uh, I think the idea of doing guest homilies is a very bad idea, mm -hmm. and it can, you know, go downhill very quickly, and the church has certainly experienced that, mm -hmm. where you have people who are not even barely familiar with church teaching, have no idea what scriptural background is about, and in many times are misinterpreting things that have happened to them in their lives mm -hmm. in, in very, very strange and heterodox ways. And so I, I have to tell you, it's, it's a terrible idea in addition to being a violation of a, a liturgical code. Right. Okay, next up, dear Father Spitzer, Catholics in a state of sin, they can go to confession for forgiveness. Non-Catholics cannot go to a priest for the sacrament. What possibilities do they have other than to ask God and hope for forgiveness? Jackie. Um, uh, well, I mean, that's what they have. Yeah, that's I mean, what they should do. Uh, if they're right? not a, yeah. yeah, there's nothing they can do. What they, that they have is, uh, 
is you know praying to God, trusting in Him, and asking for forgiveness. And if they if they're not Catholics and they're following the dictates of their conscience and they're really sincere, our church teaching says that uh, they too can uh, um, uh, inherit uh, uh, the the you know the benefits of salvation uh, wrought for us by Christ Jesus our Lord. Right, and if confession is something that they're interested, then they should maybe pursue. They should absolutely. Question and about. I think confession. Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons why people should become Catholics. Mm -hmm. Where else are you going to get this incredible sacramental grace of reconciliation and absolute uh, and absolution for for your sins? Mm -hmm. uh, where where are you going to get mortal sins included? Where are you going to get this other than the Catholic Church? Uh, so I think it's one of the great benefits of the Church, and mm -hmm. I think uh, you know if people are interested in this definitely consider becoming a Catholic. You will not regret it. It will give you that needed absolution. It will give you not only a peace of mind, it will definitely uh, protect you from the evil spirit. Those graces mm -hmm. uh, of, of the sacrament of reconciliation are the worst nightmare of uh, Satan uh, you can imagine. So I think really um, that's a real good reason to become a Catholic. I mean, people go, I just think confession is a crazy thing that the Catholic Church has. I think it's the best and salutary, most salutary thing that we have, and I'm so glad I'm a Catholic. Absolutely. Next up, another kind of interesting question along kind of like interfaith lines. Dear Father Spitzer, my neighbor is Baptist. He's convinced once someone accepts Jesus as their Lord and Savior and makes a profession of faith, they cannot lose their salvation. How do I explain to him that one can still sin and end up in hell, Ed. Well, Ed, I mean, I don't um, see what you're up against a problem, and the problem is they have been taught incorrectly, and so, and they have believed, thinking that that person really knows what they're talking about. They have believed that you now are uh, incapable of sin. Now, this doctrine is really a, t uh, you know, present uh, doctrine, and, and it's, it's there in some other faiths, mm -hmm. too. Um, but uh, the real problem with this is twofold. Number one, it can make a person absolutely leth lethargic and open them up to a sinful lifestyle because they just, you know, they think they're invulnerable. Uh, you know, myself, you know, so long as I'm professing Jesus to be Lord, you know, I... Uh, nothing's wrong here. Mm -hmm. And then you can follow, you know, a road of perdition right down uh, into the depths of that road, which is, as I've said before, it's really hard to turn around the deeper you go into mm -hmm. it. So the idea of not concentrating, not working, not, you know, continuous repentance of heart. The second thing is, of course, uh, aside from the fact that Jesus never said anything like that, mm -hmm. what Jesus said was, Perseverance, perseverance, right. perseverance. You know, vigilance, vigilance, vigilance. Stick with it. You know, you're, you're proclaiming me to be Savior. He said the opposite. He said, there are many people, who, you know, are going to come along and go, mm -hmm. but, Christ, but Lord, we did this in your name and we did that. You know, get away from me, uh, you evildoers. You know, and he, what is he saying this? What's the context, the mm -hmm. reference uh, for saying this? 
He, the very thing of building your house on sand, mm. the very thing of not building your house on rock. And what is meant by building your house on rock? Hearing the word of God and keeping it. Mm. Now, of course, uh, you could say, well, I've heard the word of God and I'm going to keep it perfectly for the rest of my life. Hmm, I thought it's good luck on that. Odds are you're going to have some challenges and difficulties in your life, even with your very good intentions. And that's why you have to keep working at it. That's why you have to keep going to the sacraments. That's why you can lose yourself and lose your way and actually get seduced into Satan's thing. Even after you have converted, it is very, it's more easy to do than anyone might think. Mm -hmm. because you think, well, I was so sincere and I really meant it. But, of course, things happen in the course of your life. Things, you get forgetful. You, you know, if you're not vigilant and you're not persevering, you can actually uh, find yourself adrift and right in, adrift into the wrong path. Mm -hmm. And so that's the, uh, uh, the main thing to, uh, uh, to consider. And um, because of that, uh, I would not believe that mm -hmm. doctrine, but what can you do? Mm -hmm. That poor person has believed and in, 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 you know, exceeded in faith to what they thought was correct. So it's going to be you're, uh, pretty hard to, to tell them, but I think the, the three things I would say is, why does Jesus talk about perseverance so often mm -hmm. and vigilance? And why does he say, you know, lots of people are going to go, but Lord, we cast out demons right. in your name, but Lord, we did all these things and get away from me, your evildoers. Why would he say that if that doctrine was true? So I'd probably start with the scriptural things first, because no doubt a good president will have respect for scripture, and that might cause him to think, and then, of course, uh, right. just I would point out the old self-knowledge. Do you really think you can just one time do it and you don't, will not have to come back again and again to the Lord and ask for his mercy um, because of uh, imperfections that happen uh, during your lifetime? Do you really think you'll be immune so that you can't fall away? It's, uh, history is replete with examples of people who have just fallen away. Mm -hmm. So um, anyway, right. I, uh, I would probably make those kinds of appeals. Right. Well, I always think of St. Paul with finishing the race, that, that, that yeah. idea of, you know, here yeah. you are with Go everything he's end. done, and he's still concerned about finishing the race. Well, why yeah. was he worried about that if he was already yeah. guaranteed? Uh, the other That's thing right. I think with some is it has to do with uh, the idea, the it, it's not that there's a, a change per se. It's kind of like a little bit of an exaggeration, but the old kind of snow on the dung of Martin Luther, where you're oh, not yeah, really necessarily yeah. changed. It's not that you, but it's just that yeah. God it kind of covers over or ignores your sins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, you know, obviously. Um, you know, Jesus counters that with uh, it's what's in the interior that counts. Mm -hmm. It's right. not what comes to a man from the outside into his uh, interior that gets washed away in the latrine. What's, what's evil is what comes out of a man. It's what, uh, out of a person. Right. What, uh, uh, you know, the, the calumny, the, 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 you know, the, you know, the lustful thoughts, the greed, the licentiousness, the murder, the theft, the lies. That's what does it. And of course, what, uh, 
uh, what you know the idea that you can get a guarantee from a, a single profession mm -hmm. and not fall prey to these terrible things from within that need to be quelled that need to be uh, you know transformed mm -hmm. in our hearts uh, that's that just doesn't look like it corresponds to Jesus at all uh, let alone any decent religious doctrine Okay, next up a, a question that's kind of related. Dear Father Spitzer, I was baptized Catholic as an infant. Evangelicals say that's not as good as I was not making my own choice at the time. How do I explain that my baptism is valid, Joanna? Well, Joanna, here's the basic thing to think about. Of course, you know, when you get baptized, um, you know, uh, into the church, uh, your, your parents are saying, I'm going to take responsibility for Joanna's education. I'm going to take responsibility for bringing her uh, to masses and to getting her, um, you know, um, equipped uh, to um, follow her conscience going forward. But what they're saying is, I want my child to have the grace of baptism. I want my child now to have those genuine religious experiences that are going to move me and hold me. And, you know, I mean, children have genuine religious experiences. And in my own life, I can tell you that my own childhood religious experiences were absolutely enhanced by the grace of baptism. And I can tell you doubly that they were enhanced <clears throat> by the reception of my first Holy Communion. And that these were riveting events <clears throat> in my life and they were really, uh, you know, attracted me and brought me closer to God and they reinforced and enhanced the teaching which I was receiving through my catechism classes. And so I think what the church is saying is, is you're building this foundation. Mm -hmm. The last thing you want to do is say, well, I'm going to ignore uh, all the possible graces that my child could get from baptism and First Holy Communion until they're like 13 years old. Then, when they're besought by every kind of temptation, you know, all the life transitions, all the moods and feelings that are swinging back and forth, you know, uh, right and left to these poor, you know, 13-year-olds. Now, here's, you know, it's time to go ahead and build the foundation and make your choice. Are you kidding me? That's the, not exactly the ideal situation under which you want to do this. And so I would just say, take a cue from your own religious experiences and just take a cue from how important the sacraments, I mean, you didn't know, of course, what baptism was, but take a look at the other sacraments, the uh, reconciliation and the first Holy Communion, and you're going wow. to church and the catechism classes you're learning and how galvanizing all of that was. And, and, and you know, being involved in the sacramental life of the church to that little child's heart of yours, which was so open and so appropriate. And don't worry, children have intuitions about God. God, they have a sense of God that is utterly profound and beyond their years. And when you put all of those things together, you'll see 
that the church's doctrine that goes all the way back, by the way, to the first century, all the way back to the scriptures and the Acts of the Apostles, mm -hmm. right? Peter is baptizing people, the whole household, into right. Christ Jesus. So, I mean, basically, uh, you know, this is not something new uh, by any stretch of the imagination or something particularly Catholic. Um, it, uh, it should be, uh, you know, across the board. Infant baptism is a very good thing. And, of course, it's a very good thing according to, um, you know, the Peter, St. Peter and the early apostles. Mm -hmm. It's a very good thing in terms of the religious experience, religious life, the religious intuitions of children. It galvanizes these things together. It helps the child to build a foundation so by the time they get to adolescence, adolescence just doesn't wrench them right out mm -hmm. of religion uh, and their self-appropriation doesn't wrench them out of religion, but instead it gets properly integrated mm -hmm. into into the religious experience, into the piety, right. the natural piety uh, of their childhood. And of course, there's going to be some ruptures, there's going to be some questioning, there's going to be some doubts, there's going to be some things that always happen with adolescents. But they got a foundation. They're not powerless. They're not going to get beaten up by the time they get mm -hmm. there. And so that's the main thing. Uh, yeah, of course, it makes utter sense right. to get your kids. It's not just the sacrament of baptism. It's the whole sacramental life of the church, from First Holy Communion all the way to Confirmation that's going on right. here, the integration, the church instruction, the whole um, uh, uh, deal. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know if theologically is correct, but I think in terms of, you know, going to communion, your amen is you're recommitting yourself to what you believe yeah. Uh, yeah. every time you go to Mass and receive communion. Uh, absolutely. So, right, so absolutely. I mean, so, uh, here's another question. Dear Father Spitzer, I often allow my emotions to control my behavior. This isn't me. This is actually from Susan. A feeling of inadequacy will trigger a verbal assault onto my husband, and I won't stop until I enrage him. Please help. Yeah. Well, um, well uh, first of all, um, uh, I, I know you know emotions can go zero to a hundred uh, very very quickly, but I do think over the course of time. Uh, you can learn uh, how not to do that. But the first thing is, I, I think, that's really, really important is to turn things over to God. I've got this little prayer, you know, Lord, I give up, you take care of it. Lord, you're the just judge. Please help me out here. You know, and so the first thing to do is before you you know you go zero to a hundred, mm. is start praying for the person you're mad at, start wanting to see the good news in that person, start you know you know wanting to see that there really is a human being, a good person, somebody that you know is is not you is is you know there. So the idea is you know the first thing is let God into the picture with one of those spontaneous prayers mm -hmm. very, very quickly. There's another thing that you can uh, do is kind of more or less a natural technique, but some people just do have that zero to 100. Mm -hmm. But if you voluntarily go in, you can, uh, to a, a therapist, you can learn techniques where you can actually control that trigger reaction mm -hmm. uh, so that, you know, biofeedback wise right. or some other method that you can use, Cognitive you can actually. Kind of stuff, right. right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can actually short circuit that moment where you just go zero to 100 and you go zero to 20 and then you could start turning around. Right. You know, you start, uh, you know, holding the engine back and you, and you learn that 
uh, through a series of techniques. And when you combine that with some of these good spontaneous prayers, right. uh, where you're actually praying for that other person right. and trying to understand them, that way, you know, it's, you know, anger begins so often in our fantasies before the right. blow up, right? Where we get offended and then we think through it and we get madder and madder and madder and madder. Right, right. And by the time you're done, you know, all you got, the poor person has to do is speak to you and boom, you know, you're going to let loose and let them have everything that they deserve. But by that time, of course, it's the myth has been blown all out of proportion. So the time to, to really stop it and to pray for it is when the fantasies are beginning, uh, the fantasies of retribution are beginning, the fantasies of thinking you've been treated unjustly are beginning. All these things, you know, when you start dreaming this stuff and fantasizing this mm -hmm. stuff, that's the place to start praying for that person. That's right. the place to say, Lord, you're the uh, just judge. You take care of it and right. so forth and start and getting some. And if you overstep some... uh, and you realize you're getting out of control, ask for forgiveness. That's always a good way to break That's it right. as well and break the cycle. That's With that being right. said, we've got to break the show. We're out of time. Father, if you'll <laughs> Very uh, good. give us your Absolutely. Uh, blessing on the way out well, the door. Bow your heads and pray for God's blessing. And may the Lord of life and of love give you a sense of his compassion and his mercy to know so well of the love that he holds out for you that you cannot help but manifest this to your brothers and sisters around you to bring that light of forgiveness and love through your own actions into the lives of others in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Father Spitzer. Be well. We shall see you next time. Don't forget about Father Spitzer's books available through the Religious Catalog. Next week, we'll return to our topic about Christ versus Satan in our daily lives. And don't forget to join me each Sunday at 10 a.m. for the latest bookmark. And uh, be sure to take EWTN with you with our EWTN app. You can see us all the time, anywhere you go, Father Spitzer's Universe and other great programs on EWTN, the EWTN app. I'm Doug Keck. Thank you for joining us. We shall see you next time.